Man, it's so good to see you. You can have a seat. I got to meet a number of new folks first time here. And if this is your first time here, welcome. We are so glad that you're here. Can we just kind of give a welcome to those that are here for the first time? So uh, we're so thankful for you. Those who are watching online, those uh, part of our local community, part of our global community, it's just so great to have you with us uh, today. Valerie Nolan is... um, um, her, her title here at Fairfax, she's on staff at Fairfax. It's executive assistant to the senior pastor. It does not reflect what she does. She oversees uh, our outreach. She oversees uh, kind of the, the, the senior pastor's office and, and everything that comes from that. She really is the one that's kind of at the center of operating the church. She tells me what to do, all of that kind of stuff. She's amazing, amazing, been here for a number of years. And uh, Valerie has the announcements for us today, let you know some things that are happening here. So uh, take a look at this. Hey Fairfax, I have a few announcements for you today. If you're new here, we would love to get to know you. If you're online, just click the new here button and let us know who you are. If you're here in person, make sure to stop by the welcome table on the way out. We would love to get to know you and get you connected to this place. If you're not in a small group already, it is an incredible way to find community and grow deeper in your faith with other people. If you're here in person, just stop by the welcome table and you can find out more about how to get connected. If you're online, just hit the groups button and you can learn more about our groups. In April, our dynamic marriage class is starting up again. This is an awesome way to grow closer intentionally with your spouse. There'll be some really practical tools available on managing conflict, identifying unhealthy behaviors, and meeting each other's emotional needs. So space is limited. Make sure you head to our website and find out all the details there and you can register there as well. Easter is next weekend, and we are getting ready to celebrate our risen Savior. So we want to know who you're going to invite to join you for one of our five Easter services. We're going to be online and in person. If you're going to join us in person, make sure that you register yourself and anyone that you're inviting. Because space is filling up. You can find out all the details on our website. That's it for today, Fairfax. Enjoy the message. I am so stinking excited about Easter at Fairfax this year. Are you excited about Easter? Like I'm, I'm ready for Easter. I need Easter after this year. And, uh, and I have a feeling that not only us as a congregation, but people that you're friends with, people that you know, uh, need Easter. And uh, so uh, don't be hesitant, be bold, invite folks to come, be a part of it. It's gonna be an amazing, amazing weekend next weekend. And uh, we want everyone that can to be a part of it, whether you're inviting them to participate online or you're inviting them to come uh, into this space. We've got five services. I think we're gonna have plenty of space. And so get signed up for that. I do wanna say just one thing is that uh, Easter... Uh, provides an opportunity to serve. We have lots of new folks that are gonna come in and the two areas where we kind of need extra folks to kind of help is in hospitality, is welcoming people into this place and in our awesome children's ministry. And so if you would be willing to maybe attend one of the services, serve in another service, uh, and you'd be willing to help, just info at fairfax.cc or you can contact uh, Ronnie Cruz or you can contact Marcy Davis who oversee those two ministries and uh, they won't put you in any position that, uh, that you're not comfortable with or that they don't prepare you for. But if you're willing to kind of help out in that way, that would be fantastic. And then um, uh, one of the things that we always say every week is just how 
thankful we are for uh, our congregation and the way in which you support this place financially. The, the giving of your tithes and offerings that allows us to do everything that God uh, has called us to do that puts us in such a healthy position and it's all because of your faithful obedience and so thank you thank you for that uh, if you want to give as an act of worship today if you're watching online there's a little button that says give at the top of your screen you can click that start the process there if you're in the sanctuary uh, we don't take an offering but we have offering boxes that are in the back of the sanctuary you can put your tithes and offerings there or you can text Fairfax give to 77977 all right so we've been journeying through the gospel of John uh, for the last several weeks and studying the life and ministry of Jesus. And the Gospel of John, I love the Gospel of John. As I've mentioned, it kind of is divided into two different sections. You have chapters 1 through 11 that are focused on the life and the ministry of Jesus, the miraculous signs that he performs, uh, his teaching, all of that. And then you get to chapter 12 and the narrative shifts really to the death of Jesus, and you're kind of on, we're on our way with Jesus to Jerusalem and to the cross, and then eventually to the resurrection. And the thing that you're reminded of is that, you know, we're gonna, next weekend, we're, we're gonna be celebrating Easter, we're gonna celebrate in a big way, but you cannot have a resurrection without a death. And, and that's one of the things when I'm, I'm talking to sometimes young leaders within our, our tribe and, and are, are just followers of Jesus that we so often, we want the resurrection. Like we want resurrection power. We want everything good that goes with the resurrection. But sometimes we are not willing to, to lay some things down. Sometimes we are not willing to die to some things so that we can experience resurrection power. And so what we're gonna do this week as we prepare our hearts for the resurrection next week is to look at a particular passage of scripture that's found in John chapter 19 that actually describes Jesus on the cross and describes his crucifixion. And when I, when I look at this passage, I think anytime I read a passage that reflects on the passion of Jesus and his time on the cross. I feel kind of like I think Moses felt when he stood before that burning bush and, and, and God said to him, Moses, you are on holy ground. You need to take your sandals off. You need to take your shoes off because you are standing on holy ground. And I kind of feel that way when we read passages about the passion of Jesus is that you know we're just standing on holy ground, holy ground. And I'm not gonna make you take your shoes off today, but I am gonna ask if uh, just in honor of the holiness of this passage, if, if we would just together, including those, if you're in a position to do this online, if we would just all stand together just in honor of God's word and in reverence for this passage. I'm gonna read from John chapter 19, starting in verse 16. It says, finally, Pilate handed him over, talking about Jesus, to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And here they crucified him. They crucified him with two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. 
And near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother standing there, and the disciple whom he loved, which by most accounts is the disciple who's writing this narrative, standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it. They put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and they lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. God, we stand before you in honor of your word and, and in particular in just humble, uh, just humble respect for what you have done for us on the cross. Uh, no matter how familiar we become with this, the the awesomeness of your death, your sacrifice, your entering into our death so that we could enter into your life. It, um, we will never be able to fully comprehend it. We will never be able to fully understand how much you love us. We will never be able to fully understand the full extent of your love. But Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and you would open our hearts today to perhaps see this passage and maybe through fresh eyes. Maybe for some of us, it's a little bit new and it's not something that we have maybe thought much about. And maybe we're kind of coming back to this whole thing after a while of time being away or maybe for others of us, like this has like been something that's been a part of our life, our whole life. But Lord, help us to step back and see this through fresh eyes today. And whatever it is that you wanna to say to us, However it is that you want to change us, may we be open to that today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you very, very much. You can have a seat. All right. So um, let me just mention three things I think God is teaching us in this passage. And the first one is this. And that is that you are not limited by your humanity. You know, uh, sometimes we will say things like, uh, you know, I'm only human. Or uh, they're only human. And usually uh, we say that after, um, you know, after we failed in some way, after we've messed up something in some way, and, and it's just like, well, I'm only human. Uh, or they're only human. And the way we use that, I'm only human, is we use it to basically, it's a statement of our limitation. Like the idea is, is that in it's my humanness, it's my humanity that places limitations on me. It's my humanity that is determining my behaviors. It's my humanity, my humanness that is, that is limiting me. It's my humanness that's determining what I can do or what I can't do or what I can accomplish or what I can't accomplish. And one of the things that you notice in this passage, um, right from the beginning, is the humanity of Jesus. The fact that, that Jesus is the son of God really does not change the experience that he's having 
on the cross. Jesus is experiencing the same kind of physical pain on the cross as the two thieves that are positioned on both sides of him. None of the pain of the crucifixion is being avoided because he's the son of God. His divinity doesn't create some kind of protective bubble around him that shields him from like all of the awful realities that are going on in that moment. In fact, that is true of his entire life. When the apostle Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, he was trying to help them to understand the fact that yes, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man, but he's trying to help them understand what it meant for him to take on flesh, like what it meant for him to enter into this world and what he was willing to lay down and to give up and to set aside in order to enter into this world. And here's the way Paul describes it. I love it. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Or, or held on to, uh, you know, held tightly, but made himself nothing. One of the other translations says, emptied himself, just emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what Paul's reminding us here is that Jesus, when he was on earth, voluntarily emptied himself of all of his divine prerogatives, right? He didn't use all of the divine resources that were at his disposal in terms of being God himself. He didn't use all the divine resources that were at his disposal. So how did Jesus do all the marvelous things he did? Jesus did all these marvelous things while he was walking on the face of this planet and he endured awful things and endured it with grace and strength and all of that. So how did he do the marvelous things? How did he endure the beatings, the rejection, the abandonment, the abuse that he received by those who were in power? Like how did Jesus do all of that? And Acts 10 actually tells us, says God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went around doing good, healing all those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Because God was with him. Sometimes we look at the life of Jesus and, and our tendency to, is to go, well, Jesus was able to do all of these marvelous things and he was able to endure all of these horrible things because he's God. Like he had something at his disposal that we don't have at our disposal. We're only human. Like we're only human and we say that as a kind of a limitation of what we can do. And we kind of go, well, Jesus was God. And so that's how he did all of this. And we're human and that's why we're limiting all this. But that's not, that's not the way scripture talks about it. The Bible says that Jesus emptied himself of all of those divine prerogatives when he was on earth. Scripture says that Jesus did all of these marvelous things that he did. He endured all of the difficult stuff that he endured by the power, because he had the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Heavenly Father. He had the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Heavenly Father. Think about that. Jesus was not limited by his humanity. Jesus was empowered in the midst of his humanity. 
And what that means is that you and I, we are not limited by our humanity. We are empowered in the midst of our humanity. You are not limited by your circumstances. You are not limited by the challenges that you face. You are not limited by the losses that you have experienced. You are not limited by the pain that you have gone through. You are not limited by the decisions perhaps that you've made in the past. You are not limited by the decisions that others have made that have impacted you in some way that you are not limited by all of that. Why? Because you have the same resources available to you that Jesus had available to him. You have at your disposal, we have at our disposal, the power of the Holy Spirit. We have at our disposal, the presence of the heavenly Father. We have all of that. We have at our disposal, the same thing that Jesus had available to him. We just have to tap into the power. We just have to lean in to the presence. And when we do, not even death itself can defeat us. That is the message of the cross, that when we lean into the power of the Holy Spirit, when we lean into the presence of the Father in our life, that not even death itself can defeat us. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, that you and I, we have a thirst that only Jesus can quench. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, one of the things that he cries out, you read in the text, not long before he dies, he says, I am thirsty. And our immediate thought when Jesus says, I am thirsty is, well, of course he's thirsty. He's hanging on a cross under the intense heat of the Near Eastern sun. Uh, one of the common things that people died of when they were crucified was dehydration. They literally died of thirst, it was a horrible, horrible death. So at one level, like it makes sense under that circumstance that Jesus would say, I'm thirsty. But what's interesting is that up to that moment, Jesus hasn't complained about any of the physical pain that he has gone through. So he cries out, I'm thirsty, but he didn't cry out when they blindfolded him and when they struck him in the face. He cried out, I'm thirsty, but he didn't cry out when they beat him with a whip that had little, uh, little pieces of bone or little pieces of metal at the end of each little strand on the whip so that literally when the whip came down on his back, it ripped the flesh away all the way to the bone. He didn't cry out. He didn't cry out when they jammed a crown of thorns on his, his head and, and caused the blood to flow down on his face. He didn't cry when they drove iron spikes into his hands and into his feet. We're told that in each of those circumstances, Jesus was quiet. But he didn't say a word. He didn't cry out. So why would Jesus cry out now? Why would Jesus complain about being thirsty? Well, it's because in that moment, his thirst, the thirst that is being manifested is more than just a physical thirst. It's a, it's a thirst that is deeper than that. It's a thirst that is more profound than that. It's a, it's a spiritual thirst. A few weeks ago, Kyle um, preached an amazing sermon about John 4. And, and maybe some of you um, 
were here and you heard that message, if not, go back and listen to that message. It's a fantastic message. And it's a story in John 4 about the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at a well outside of a city in Samaria. And the whole conversation, basically, you boil the whole conversation, is that they spend most of the time talking about water, talking about thirst. And, you know, Jesus is at this well and he kind of uses the well in some respects as a, a metaphor. And he says, he says to the woman, he says, you know, you can, the water that you get from this well, uh, it's going to quench your thirst for a while, but then you'll be thirsty again and you'll have to kind of come back. But I have water available to me that I can give to you that you will never thirst again. Now, in, in the Bible, the thirst is, is a metaphor for spiritual emptiness. It's a metaphor for the emptiness that we experience when, when God is not at the center of our life. In other words, when our life does not revolve around God, God is not at the center of our life, that there is this spiritual thirst that we have. And scripture uses that metaphor a lot, that spiritual thirst is, 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 or thirst is like this spiritual emptiness that we have in our heart. That's what the psalmist David's talking about in Psalm 42 when he says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts, my soul thirsts for God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When can I go and meet with this God? You know, it's, it's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to meet with God, to have God at the center of your life, to have your life revolve around God, for God to be more than this you know, that one piece of like, oh, I, I, okay, I want to have a balanced life. So I've got, you know, I've got this part of my life, got my family part of my life, got my vocational part of my life. I got, you know, the recreational part of my life. And I've got this like spiritual part of my life. God is like balances things out. No, that meeting with God is not about like having God as a part of like balancing our life out. Like meeting with God is having God at the center of our life. It's having our life actually revolve around God so that every other aspect of our life, our, our vocation, our finances, our, our decisions that we make, our relationships, all of that, all of those things revolve around the reality of God in our life. That's what it means to, you know, to thirst is when we don't have that. And our soul thirsts, our, there's a thirst what scripture is saying is, is that our soul actually is thirsting for God to be at the center of our life, even if we don't know that that's what our soul is thirsting for. So when scripture talks about the fact that our soul thirsts for God, they're not talking about just the souls of religious people or the souls of people who go to church, or the souls of people who believe in God, or the souls of people who have come to understand who Jesus is and they've put their faith in Jesus, that, that those who have connected all the dots, that their souls thirst for God. No, what scripture is saying, every single person on the planet, every single person who has ever lived, their soul actually thirsts for God. Why? Because, because, you can't, you can believe in God and you can still be trying to quench 
the thirst in your soul with something else. So, you know, you can be not religious, not believe in God, not connect all these Jesus, all of that, and you're and your soul, you're trying to quench your thirst with something else, but you can also believe in God. You can have put your faith in God. You can have prayed the prayer. You and God are good. All of that, you know that you put your faith in God and still walk through life actually trying to quench a thirst that only God can quench with something else. So you can believe in God and still try to quench the thirst in your soul with vocational success. You can believe in God and still try to quench the thirst in your soul with academic success. You can believe in God and still try to quench the thirst in your soul by surrounding yourself with a bunch of awesome friends that are in your life. You can believe in God and still try to quench the thirst in your soul with sex and romance. You can you can believe in God and still try to quench the thirst in your soul with a baby or with another baby or with influence or with money or with a new home, whatever it is. You can believe in God and still spend sometimes our whole lives trying to quench our thirst with something else. So when the woman tells Jesus, give me some of that water, like I want the water you're talking about. She doesn't understand everything that Jesus is saying, but she's saying, I want what you're talking about. I want a kind of water that I will never thirst again. And what's interesting in the story is that Jesus immediately in a response to saying, I want that water that you're talking about, Jesus. Jesus says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he goes, I know, <laughs> you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Now, you look at that and it just seems like it's a disconnect. They're talking about water, they're talking about thirst, they're talking about all of that. And all of a sudden, Jesus, it feels like Jesus like takes this right-hand turn and starts talking about her relationships and broken marriages and all of that stuff. What's Jesus doing there? Well, he's pointing out that for this woman that sex and romance have become the water that she's been turning to to quench the thirst in her soul. Now, she doesn't know that she's, thirst, uh, she's thirsty for God. She wouldn't articulate it that way. Most people don't. Like most people, as they are trying to quench the thirst that only God can quench, and they're trying to quench it with something else, they're not cognizant of the fact that, oh, I'm thirsty for God. I'm thirsty for God. I'm thirsty for God to be the center of my life or my whole life to revolve around him. They're not aware of it. She wasn't aware of that. But that's exactly what's happening. For her, sex and romance has been the way that she's been trying to quench her thirst. She's been lowering her bucket into the well of romance. She's been lowering her bucket into the well of sex. And the result is that it quenches her thirst for a while. But then she gets thirsty again because that will never be able to quench the thirst in her soul. And the same is true for us. Like we, we can lower our bucket into the well of vocational success or we can lower our bucket into the pursuit of academic success. We can lower our bucket into romance and sex. We can lower our bucket into 
family sometimes, into family, into having a child, or having another child, or if I can just find the right person in my life, if we can just get the, the right house, if, if we can just get some more resources, if we can just accomplish a little more, if I can just get to the next level vocationally, um, like th- this thirst that I can't quite fully understand what it is, I feel like that will quench it. And here's what's interesting is that uh, a couple of things. One is that when you're kind of early on in life, there's the hope that maybe that will quench that thirst. Maybe if I can find the right person, maybe it will quench the thirst. Maybe we just got married and maybe this relationship will quench that thirst. Or maybe if we could just have a child, that will quench that thirst. Or maybe if I could just get a better job that I like more than what I have now that really taps into my passions and gifts, maybe that will quench that thirst. Or maybe if we can go from renting to buying, maybe that will quench it. Whatever it is, you know, there's this sense, this hope that maybe it will quench that thirst. And when you're kind of early in your journey, in your life journey, there's the hope that will happen. But then, if you kind of keep doing that, there's this repetitive process that starts happening. And it happens a lot in a place like Fairfax because we're a place in the world where we can actually get most of that stuff and we can actually achieve most of that stuff. I mean, we're a, we're a culture of doers. We're a, a culture of accomplishers. We're a culture of like, don't tell me what I can't do. I, I'm, I can do it. But you start to see after a period of time there's this pattern that develops and it's like, I thought that would quench. I thought finding the right person would quench that thirst within my soul. I thought having a child would quench that thirst. I thought getting a better job would quench. I thought moving to some other place other than this, you know, where all the traffic is. And I thought that would quench that thirst. I thought, you know, making more money would, I, I thought that. But, and it did for a while. See, that's the thing is that it does quench our thirst for a while, but then we get thirsty again. And then we pursue something else and it quenches the thirst for a while, but then we get thirsty again. And it's because we're longing for water that only Jesus can provide. That's the only water that brings us life, that quenches the thirst And that's why Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Like, that's why when he's hanging on the cross, it's not just that I'm in pain here. He's been in pain and said nothing. The reason he says on the cross, I'm thirsty, is because on the cross, Jesus is not just experiencing physical thirst. In that moment, he's experiencing the, the profound, deep, spiritual thirst of being separated from his heavenly father. You remember that Jesus on the cross, one of the other things that he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That in that moment on the cross that Jesus steps away from the intimacy of meeting with the heavenly father, the very thing that quenches our spiritual thirst, 
On the cross, he is thirsty so that you will never thirst again. That on the cross, Jesus is thirsty so that you will be able to drink living water that will quench your soul. That's why Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And then the third thing is just this, and it's just that the cross is enough. And here's what I mean by that. The final words of Jesus on the cross are found in verse 30. Jesus says, it's finished. It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, a lot of you already know that the Greek word that's translated there as it is finished is uh, tetelestai. And tetelestai is, it was used in a number of different settings, but it was, it was kind of a transactional word that was often used in the marketplace. And so when something was purchased, something was redeemed, something was gotten, that um, either a receipt of some sort was stamped with the word to telestai, you know, paid, paid in full, transaction completed, transaction done, whatever that is, or maybe the item itself was like stamped with, you know, to telestai, paid in full, it's done, this transaction is over it's been accomplished all of that and this is the final thing that jesus says on the cross it's done it's finished it's completed now think about that for a second here's i've been talking this weekend about the fact that one of the for some of you maybe the cross and the passion of jesus is is a little bit like you're thinking about it anew again or you're maybe coming back to it after a while of not maybe having thought about that much, but for others of you, you know, maybe you grew up in the church, you've been a part of the church for your whole life, and it's like, you're so familiar, and, you know, and for me, it happens to me, I'm so familiar with the narrative that it loses its, uh, it loses its mystique. It loses its uh, sense of power and, and, and how, in some respects, how surprising it is. And I think, I think that happens to us when it comes to this. Because think about this. Jesus is, is on the cross. Jesus is, is totally defenseless. He, he appears completely powerless. He's not in control of the situation. It doesn't appear that he's in control, at least, of the situation that he's in. To the, to the casual observer, including the disciples, It doesn't look like Jesus is doing anything here. It looks like everything's being done to him, right? It looks like uh, the, the Roman government is doing this to Jesus. It looks like the religious leaders are doing this to Jesus. It looks like the enemy, Satan, is doing this to Jesus. It doesn't look like Jesus is doing anything. It looks like something is being done to Jesus. And it's in this moment that Jesus says, it's finished. I, I did it. I did it. I accomplished it. Mission accomplished. I accomplished what I came to earth to do. It is done. It is completed. It is finished. Nothing else has to be done. Nothing more needs to be paid. You don't have to add anything to this. It is finished. 
have you ever um, have you ever paid for someone else's meal, and uh, you, uh, you you paid for the meal, uh, maybe several people, and you put down a tip, and uh, and then someone else um, puts a little extra tip in there. Uh, they wouldn't say it, but it's like it's just like mm, I wasn't quite good enough, you know. Or, uh, or they maybe slip the waiter or the waitress a little extra tip and kind of like, like, oh, I know he's kind of cheap or she's kind of cheap, but here, I, I'm, I'm gonna give you something else. There was actually a, an episode on, uh, on Friends that was about that. Friends, uh, for some of you, um, you, you might need to Google that. And uh, History Channel has some information on Friends. And uh, it was a television show. And... Uh, so, uh, so you can Google that. But on Friends, um, there was kind of an episode like that where, you know, where someone paid for everything, put on a tip. Someone else was like, oh, that was not quite good enough. You know, it's just insulting, right? It's just insulting. Like you've, you've paid for all of this and someone is just like, oh, that's not quite good enough. So I'm going to add a little something to it. Or maybe you've had this experience where you've worked your tail off on a project at work and, uh, and then at the very end of the project, after everything is basically done, one of your coworkers or maybe your boss or whatever does one tiny little thing, one final little thing that they do, and then they want to take all the credit for the project. Or maybe, maybe not all the credit, but they want to say, you know, here's what, here's what so-and-so and I work together to do. And, and you're thinking, no, we did not work together for this. Like I worked my tail off for this. Yeah, there's other things where I worked with a team. There's other things where I collaborated with a bunch of folks. That did it. You are not one of them. Like I did this, you did one little thing that you added to it. And now you're trying to say, oh, look what we did. Like it's maddening, right? It's just absolutely maddening. And that's, yet, that's what we do to God all the time. When Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, think about this. It was the completion, scripture says, of a plan that was put into place before the foundation of the world. So before the world was even created. And so, you know, billions of years, whatever it is, this is, we're told in scripture, before the foundation of the world, Jesus was the lamb that was slain. So this was a plan that has been put in place before the foundation of the world. And now it has come to this moment where Jesus is on the cross and he has given his life as the fulfillment of this plan that was put in place before the foundation of the world. And he says, it's finished. This plan that has been in place since the foundation of the world, it's finished, it's done, it's over. There's nothing else that needs to be done that, that, that it, it, it's paid for, it's completed, everything is paid in full. And then we sometimes try to add our own little additional tip on top of what Jesus has paid. Or we try to do our little bitty part at the end and then kind of go, look what Jesus and I have done. Look what Jesus and I have accomplished. You go, well, how, how do we do that? Well, I think we do that in a couple of ways, either by constantly beating ourselves up 
or by constantly trying to prove ourselves. For some of us, every time we make a mistake, every time we do something wrong, every time we fail, rather than just admitting it, owning it, confessing it, repenting of it, saying, I wanna move in a different direction, we just beat ourselves up over and over again. We're not convinced. What that is saying is we're not convinced that what Jesus Christ did on the cross is really enough. We're not convinced that his pain is enough, that we need to inflict a little bit more pain on ourselves. We need to beat ourselves up a little bit more because the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross for that failure is not quite enough. So I need to inflict a little bit more pain on myself. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 the cross is enough. My pain is enough. You don't need to beat yourself up. I was beaten for you. And it is finished. It is done. It's completed. Everything is paid in full. So stop trying to add to what I've already done. And for those of us who are constantly trying to prove ourselves, um, it's usually a different way that we try to add to what Jesus has done on the cross. And usually it manifests itself in a form of judgmentalism. If we can point out where someone else has failed, then we don't have to maybe focus quite as much on where we have failed. If we can point out where someone else is hypocritical, man, that was so hypocritical what they did, that, that church, that pastor, that person, whatever it is. Like if we can point out where someone else is hypocritical, we don't have to kind of focus quite as much on where we are hypocritical. If we can, if we can point out where, you know, if we can point out the hurtful words of others or the hurtful actions of others, then, then we don't have to focus so much on the things that we've said that has hurt someone or the things that we have done that has hurt someone. I think one of the reasons that there's so much judgmentalism in our culture, and maybe it's always been there, but it hasn't been as visible because of our ability to communicate, our ability to express ourselves. You know, certainly, I don't know that we're more judgmental than we've ever been in the history of the world, but we can express our judgmentalism more than we've ever been able to express it in the history of the world. And I think one of the reasons there's so much judgmentalism in our culture, so much judgmentalism on social media, so much judgmentalism toward people that are different than us, believe different than us, think different than us, is because I think we have a world filled with people who are desperately trying to prove to themselves or maybe to their tribe or their group or whatever. Or maybe if they believe in God and really put their faith, maybe they're trying to, maybe they're trying to prove to God that they're okay that they're not so bad, that, uh, that they're one of the decent people. We're, we're one of the decent ones. We're, we're one of the good ones. We're, we're not like the, those other folks out there. 
And I think a lot of our judgmentalism kind of grows out of this desperate desire to maybe to keep proving to ourselves or keep proving to others or proving to God that we're okay. We're okay. And what Jesus, I think, is saying to all of us is that you don't have to prove anything. You don't, you don't have anything to prove that the cross is enough. It's finished. It's done. It's over. It's completed. It's paid. Stop trying to add to what I've done. And I think when we realize that, when we realize that the cross is enough... I think it sets us free in so many ways. I think it sets us free from judgmentalism. When you really embrace that the cross is enough, I think it sets us free from judgmentalism. I think it, it sets us free to be a little bit more gracious to other people because God has been so gracious to us. It sets us free to be a little quicker to forgive other people because God has forgiven us. It sets us free to be a little bit more merciful, show a little bit more mercy. Oh man, if there's anything our world needs, it's a little more grace, a little more forgiveness. It's a little more mercy. And I think when you realize that the cross is enough, it sets you free to to show a little more mercy, a little more grace, a little more forgiveness, a little more patience. You know, the only reason we're here today is because God has been so patient with us. He's been so patient with me. He's been so patient with you. And when you realize that the cross is enough, I think it sets you free to just be a little bit more patient with other people in your life. God, we are just so overwhelmed by the fact that the cross really is enough. And for many of us, we've heard the story, we reflect on it, we know it, all of that, but sometimes we, we try to add our little tip, we try to do our little piece to somehow, because somewhere down deep inside, we really don't think the cross is enough, and it is. And so, Lord, set us free. We need, we need the church. We need people to be set free, to be less judgmental, to be more forgiving, more gracious, more patient, more merciful. So set us free. And Lord, for those of us who have embraced the cross in our lives and we've said yes to what you've done for us on the cross and that you've forgiven our sins and all that, just let us walk in that with a little bit more intentionality. And for those of us who are maybe watching online today or maybe sitting in these blue seats and really they would have to say, I've never really embraced the reality of the cross like in my life. I've never said yes to God's forgiveness and to his mercy and, and to his grace. And 
kind of been trying to save myself or earn my salvation in some way or do enough penance to pay for the stupid decisions I made in the past or whatever it is, Lord. Pray that today, this Palm Sunday 2021 would be the day that the cross becomes enough. That for some folks, they're able to say, that was the day when I said yes to what Jesus did for me on the cross and accepted his forgiveness and his grace. Wow. Lord, we know that the angels rejoice every time that happens, and I pray that it happens today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand together as we